Hey everybody, welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast, where relatives of famous athletes, entertainers, and musicians get to tell their stories. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, retired goaltender Jordan Parise returns to the show. As a teenager, Jordan played for the legendary hockey program at Shattuck St. Mary's in Minnesota. Also, after his time in the American Hockey League, Jordan took his talents to Europe and played in Austria, Norway, Germany, and Italy. And now... He's using what he learned and paying it forward by coaching kids to help improve their games. Jordan, welcome back to the show. Rob, thanks, man. I'm super pumped to do this again. Thank you for coming back and doing this. And the first question I have is about Shattuck St. Mary's. For me as a hockey fan, Shattuck is well known for producing hockey talent like Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon, Jonathan Tate, and the list goes on and on and on. You played there. What was it like growing up? playing there. Shattuck was a really interesting place. And I went there at an interesting time. You can go there as early as sixth grade. So my brother was there as a sixth grader and I was there as an eighth grader. It's an interesting time because that is around 11, 12, 13 years old. You're starting to really establish yourself in your friend group. Then you move. And you're amongst an entirely different group of people. And these kids are from all over the country, all over the world. So most of the kids that are at this school are their parents shipping them off at sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade to a school that's across the country or across the world and hoping that this is the best opportunity for them. A lot of very diverse backgrounds. And we all kind of end up in this old school that was built in the 1850s as a military school. And... Shattuck looked exactly like a college campus. You walk across the campus, you have your breakfast in the morning, and basically right from breakfast, you're walking into classes. Everything is right there. You go to class, you go to hockey, you come back, finish your classes that day. You have a a little bit of time at night to sort of wander around. Then you have dinner and then study hall. Taking a quick step back, how did your dad, you, and your brother end up at Shattuck? My dad took a job to go down as the director of hockey at Shattuck. I was going for sure. My brother, we didn't know if he was a little bit too young. Now we're here to play hockey and to go to school. And from an academic standpoint, it was a huge, huge change. From a hockey standpoint, obviously, it was a huge change. What I was used to was... In Minnesota hockey, I think that you can play a maximum of 26 games per year. When we went to Shattuck, we were then playing 60 to 70 games per year. From a hockey standpoint, this was a massive, massive change. And I think that there was a guy that was before my dad, Craig Norwich. He had this vision in Minnesota. How can we create this amazing program, but break away from Minnesota hockey? And at the time it was, Craig, what are you doing? He had a vision and my dad followed up on that vision. And the person after that was Tom Ward. And this was going to be a place where the opportunity was to make just an epic, epic school for hockey. And now the amount of national championships this place has put together, it's it's been incredible. But not only from the hockey standpoint, you also look at the enrollment that has been taking place. I mean, back in the 90s, it was on the brink of collapse and it was on the brink of going bankrupt. And once Craig Norwich decided to build this hockey program, that changed everything. And now it is what it is today. So you mentioned your dad was the hockey director there, and he was the hockey director for over a decade. You were a player there while your dad was the hockey director. Your brother also played there as well. What was it like to play with your dad being the hockey director, was there an extra amount of pressure? Did people view you as, oh, he's playing there because his dad's the hockey director? My dad made it a point to never putting us into a situation or probably even himself into a situation where there could be any views of favoritism at all. To be honest with you, he was probably harder on both of us than he was on any other kid. The expectations were high and he was our coach at the rink and he was our dad at home. Those boundaries were very obvious and very clear. No matter who the person was, he was an extremely easy person to go and talk to, very comforting, very warm, very honest, would always listen. So he was still providing that even though he was our coach, but 
the boundaries were very clear for us that when you're at the rink, this is how you perform and this is how you play. He didn't give us a lot of wiggle room. When we were at home, he was our dad, wonderful, everything. He was wonderful all the time, but there was a very clear discrepancy between being at the rink and being at home. He made sure that we upheld that if you're going to come to the rink, you're going to play and you're going to work hard and you're, everything that you are going to get yourself involved in, you're going to do your best. He held us to that. I can't ever say that he made it easier on us. As a matter of fact, it was my opportunity to go from Bantams up to the top team. And he made sure that that coach knew, hey, you don't have to pick my son. If he's not ready to play, don't pick him. And I wasn't ready to play and I didn't get picked. Did that ever create any kind of issue between you and your dad? That kind of a very delicate tightrope to walk with the hockey side and then the family side. He did a great job of explaining to not only myself, but to anybody, any parent, any kid that was in a situation where they were a bubble player. And that discussion was simply, what would you rather do? Would you rather be on the top team and not play because you're not ready? Or would you rather go down on the team and you are now a stud? Most people would rather go somewhere and rather be a stud and rather do really well, rather score a lot of goals, rather make a lot of saves, play a lot of games, all of those things. Some parents run into an issue with that now and they don't want to say that their kid is a B player. But this goes into how I coach now and what I think is important for every kid and every parent that I'm working with is that we want to make sure that we put these kids into an environment where they excel. They're not necessarily crushing everything, but they're not being crushed. So there's a very fine balance of where do we put this particular player so that things are a little bit difficult for him, but not too difficult where he quits. But we also can't have things where it's too easy for because then they'll just say, well, this is too easy for me and I don't need to do this anymore. What was it also like to play with your brother? I mean, having your brother as a teammate, we talked a little bit about this on the first podcast, but what was it like to play with your brother for the first time at Shattuck? I loved it. I loved playing on a team with him, but I also noticed that it's becoming clearer that Zach is going to be a very, very good player. Now that I am older, I can look at it and say it was a very difficult time for me to understand that I'm at the same place as him. I'm doing the same things as him, working out the same, getting on the ice the same, all these different things. Granted, the major difference between us was that I was a goalie and he was a forward, but I'm doing all the same things. This doesn't make sense to me that he is getting all of these accolades and I'm not getting any of these accolades. At that time, it was very hard on me. It was very difficult for me to understand how this was happening. And this was an opportunity for me, since I'm not getting enough attention on the ice, maybe there's a way for me to get attention off of the ice. And started acting out and being a little bit more of a rebellious son. It was a very interesting time for me that I had to navigate very, very lightly. It ended up being an extremely positive experience for me in the long run. But at a time of insecurity, a time of uncertainty, it was very difficult for me. And it ended up that towards the end of my tenure at Shattuck, I was expelled from school. And it was my time to act out. And it was my time to take center stage because I couldn't do it on the hockey rink. So I had to do it somewhere else. What exactly caused you to get expelled? Because I would imagine it wasn't just a small issue. There were a number of different things. Shattuck was an interesting place at that time, and I felt that there were a number of different people that were in positions of leadership that should not have been in positions of leadership. There were just some people there where I was like, this person has authority, they're pushing authority, but they're not authority figures. I was very confused with a lot of that at that time. And this is for my senior year, but we were about to leave for Russia, actually. We were going on a trip out there, and I got caught in the dorms with tobacco. That was kind of like the thing to do then. And one of the teachers caught me. I felt as though he may have been a little bit brash, a little bit harsh. He ended up going to the headmaster, telling him that he caught me chewing. And I got called in and, and basically was told that you guys are going to Russia, but you're not going to be able to play. According to Minnesota high school rules, if you are caught with any tobacco use, then you can't play hockey for a two-week period. So 
I was already suspended from hockey at that point. And then I decided this is a good opportunity for me to go and talk to that teacher and tell them that I was not very pleased with them. So I used some choice words with them, which ended up leading me to get suspended from school at that time. <laughs> so that was kind of the starting point for what ended up happening my senior year. And then right before we went to nationals, my brother was in trouble at school for whatever reason, decided that it was in my best interest to go and confront the teacher that was getting my brother in trouble. That teacher went a little bit overboard and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I told her to get her effing hands off me. And she went to the headmaster and told the headmaster a couple of lies. The headmaster called my dad in and said, hey, listen, this is borderline too many times that your son has gotten in trouble. We're going to have to expel him. And so two weeks before we went to the uh, national tournament that year, I ended up getting expelled from school. So I didn't get an opportunity to play at the national tournament that they won. Couldn't go to things like prom, couldn't go back on campus anymore, all these other things. So another part of that spiraling misunderstanding of what was going on, needing attention, not getting attention or getting the wrong attention. And this is what kind of led to a major, major shift in my life and the direction that I was going. Going back to the hockey family dichotomy, how was that handled at home with your parents, particularly your dad, having to remove himself from the hockey realm to be your dad? Well, I can't say that either of my parents were very pleased with the circumstance, but bless my dad's soul. I mean, he was just such an understanding person and wanted to listen and wanted to understand what was going on. And sat me down and essentially had a discussion with me and not so many words of where you're going is not the right place. And you need to make a shift. If you don't make a shift, this is where it's going to end up. The way that my dad worded it at that time and considering the dire circumstances that were going on, I mean, this is a major, major thing to happen to a 17-year-old kid or an 18-year-old kid to be expelled from school and not being able to play hockey at that time everything was on the brink of collapse. And so I was ready to listen at that time. He kind of gave me some guidance, what I should be doing and how I should be shifting things around. Not that he hadn't in the past. I was listening a little bit more intently at this point. He gave me some ideas and I decided this is the best opportunity and the best time for me to make a major shift in my life. I feel like it was around that time that things started to really change. I went to my first year of juniors at that time and my first year of juniors didn't go very well, understandably. I was just kind of like figuring out where do I land? How do I do all of these things? How do I make sure that I'm being a good person constantly, making sure that I'm not lying to people, making sure that I'm doing right? Doing the right thing is always the right thing. And so I just started to take on this different mentality. And it took about a year before things started to land and things started to really shape my life a little bit differently. Going back to something you said a few minutes ago, you mentioned players coming in from all over the country and in some cases Canada and elsewhere. With a whole bunch of teenagers generally hijinks follows, are there a couple of good memories of that that you wouldn't mind sharing? Oh boy, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there are a lot of things that took place in those dorms and at Shattuck. I mean, you have to imagine for every dorm parent that's in there, there were two dorm parents on each level. There were three levels and there was probably... 40 kids on each one of these levels. We have no parents that are around. We have nothing but time. And then if kids don't want to go to sleep at the time, we have a lights out period, but a majority of the time it was kind of an optional thing or just stuff a towel on the bottom of the door so that nobody can see that you're actually doing anything in there. The lights are on and we had to hide TVs in dressers. There was all these ways that people did things in order to break rules. It was just phenomenal to watch. Let your imagination run on how teenage boys that are locked in an old building try to entertain themselves. Who are you still close with from that time period? I sit here and I think about this. Let me put it this way, Rob. A lot of the times when kids are going through these vulnerable stages in life, they still have an opportunity to get away. They still have an opportunity to go home and get away from the chaos, get away from the mix. Shattuck was such an interesting place because you were with these people all the time. There was no opportunity for you to leave. So everyone saw the best and the worst out of everyone. Much like siblings, this can either make people say, hey, listen, this is my best friend for life. I know everything about them. They know everything about me. Or 
it can make people very angry and almost reclusive. And so I saw both sides of that. All the people that I have for my best friends to this day were all people that were from Shattuck. After you left Shattuck and played college at North Dakota and then played for Lowell, you ended up going to Austria. How did that deal come about and did you like it there? When we were at Shattuck, my freshman year, for about two weeks, we went to Italy, Austria, and Germany to go and play games. And so that was sort of the starting point for my love for travel and my love to go and see the rest of the world. And what was fascinating is that when I went to Austria, when I signed with Red Bull there, there was a time where I was walking around in downtown Salzburg. And I was just wandering around, not really knowing where I was going, just kind of testing out the city as best as I possibly could. And I rounded this corner and I ended up in a garden. It was like an instant deja vu flashback moment where I was in that exact place around that exact same time of the year, 11 years prior. For me, initially saying, hey, I'm going to go to Europe. It wasn't that scary for me. As a matter of fact, I look at it like, wow, this is a really amazing opportunity and could be an amazing experience for me to go and do this. So I went to Red Bull. I went there for the experience. I went there to get away from the American League. I went there for better money, but I didn't realize that I was going to deal with homesickness. We had quite a few North Americans on the team at the time. I didn't really realize that being away from everything that I knew was going to impact me that much. Language barrier was tough. If you saw somebody that was a native of Austria and they were 25 and younger, it was pretty much a guarantee that they were going to be able to speak English. 25 to 50, it was kind of hit or miss. And then 50 and above, it didn't seem like very many people spoke English at all. So dealing with that language barrier was a little bit difficult. The skill level of some players was very high. The Hockey IQ of players was definitely a little bit lower. We were playing on Olympic-sized sheets, so that was a big difference. I'm used to games that were very tight, a lot of physical play, very intense. And then all of a sudden you move that out and you have Olympic-sized sheets. Now the skilled players can be extremely, extremely skilled. The professional game for me was very different. So going over to Europe at that time was a huge shock for me from a hockey standpoint. The coach there was Pierre Paget. What was he like to play for? Pierre Paget was a very interesting guy for me to work with. I didn't really know much about him except for he played in the NHL, coach in the NHL. Like, wow, this is going to be a, a perfect place for me to go, prepare myself, and then come back to the United States after making sure that my body was functioning properly. I was going to play a lot of games. And I got there and... Most of it was accurate. Some of it was not. He allowed me to play. I ended up playing that year about 70 games, so I can't complain about playing time. But he was a very, very interesting cat. And I think that if you talk with people that played under him, they will all say the same thing. But he did exactly what I needed him to do. And he allowed me to play. And that's all that I could have asked have some things that I'd like to say about him, but ultimately I got out of him what I needed to get out of him. And at the end of the year, I was making a decision. I had an agent that came and spoke to me and said, it's time for you to go back to the United States. You are ready to go. You're ready to play. You played a lot of games. You look sharp. It's your time to go back. I had a different agent that was saying, who was my true agent at that time saying, Hey, listen, like, I really think that you should stay over in Europe. You can make a really good career out here. You can make a lot of money and you can really live an amazing life. It's going to be really hard for you to go back into the NHL. And as a young kid, I sit there and I want to listen to the things that are more intriguing to me. Staying in Europe and playing in Austria at that time was less intriguing to me than going back and playing in the NHL. So I decided that I was not going to listen to my real agent and I was going to go with this other guy. and. I decided that I was turning down a contract in Austria and was going to go back to the United States. After I decided to decline that contract in Austria, I had a very stark realization that there were 
26 unrestricted free agent goalies that year with NHL experience and then me. So the doors were closing extremely rapidly. It was a hard lesson for me to learn, but that's kind of the turning point of me leaving Austria the first time and then going back to the United States and ended up going to Pittsburgh for that year. On that Red Bull team, there were some fairly good players. You played with a couple of Austrian legends like Thomas Koch, who I think is still playing to this day, and Dieter Kalt, who he and his dad are both Austrian hockey royalty. There was a, another guy named Matthias Trotnig, and Matthias Trotnig was just a big horse. He was what you would consider like a third-line NHL player that could snap a puck and was tough in the corners and all these other things. So there were guys that were there. Their skill levels were there. They were threats. Dieter Kalt, I'm glad that you brought him up, but what an unbelievable human being that guy is. What a great leader he ended up being. I know that he's doing a leadership company now, which doesn't surprise me at all, but I think he's a three-time Olympian, one scoring titles there. Thomas Koch, same thing. Just an unbelievably skilled athlete. So I got there and I was like, okay, there are some really, really good players. And then there were guys that were from the U.S. that were going over there. Some young guys, such as this is a different Ryan McDonough, but he had scored 100 points in the OHL the year before. You had Lee Sweat, who left there and ended up playing in the KHL and then ended up playing in the NHL for Vancouver Canucks. There were guys there that were legitimately great hockey players. But it's a totally different game. If you try to put them back in the United States or you try to put them on national teams and things like that against some of the really high-end talent, against the Canadians, against the Americans, against the Russians, you're like, okay, there is a difference here. But for that league... Same thing when I went to Norway, I got on the ice for my first practice and I was floored at the skill level of some of these guys. But then all of a sudden you threw them in a game and it was like they had never played the game before. It was crazy. It was, sometimes it was really crazy to see some of these guys. You throw them in traffic and game changes drastically for them, but they can stick handle in a phone booth. Your year in Salzburg, you make the finals and unfortunately don't come out on the winning side, but... What are some of your favorite memories of that playoff run? Man, I think that we were down 3-1. We ended up beating them in their barn in game five. Came back to Salzburg. Now we're down 3-2. And we had another guy that played in the NHL that came over at the end of the year. His name was Daryl Bootland. He ended up scoring, I think, late in the third period and then scored again in overtime. And so now we're going to game seven. We were ready and we go back to Klagenfurt for that game seven and we're buzzing. I think it was in the second period. They scored on a deflection off one of my favorite player on the team. His name is Rebek. He gets a shot off of his knee. He's not even really in the play and we end up losing that game. We hit a post with like 20 seconds left or something, but end up losing the game. It was the first time since high school where I was in some sort of series, game sevens. That's the drug right there. You want to have the opportunity where everything is on the line and you've worked extremely hard and there's been back and forth. And when you have series, it starts to expose a lot of things. When we were in a series and we were in game seven, the games were so tight and the series was so much fun. And doing that run with them just made me realize I love the competitive side of this and I love going deep into seasons and I love that we've created all these bonds and this camaraderie. We're all doing this together now. It was the first time that I had felt that since I had been in college of we are all towing the boat the same way. Unfortunately, we came out on the losing end of that in game seven, but just an awesome, awesome experience for us. The next year you try to get back in NHL, doesn't work out. So you head back to Austria and do what I call, you can't beat them, join them. So you ended up signing with Klagenfurt late in the year. I went over there at Christmas and played the last 13 games with the team or something like that. And it was a really funny time because I went over there and they had a number of injuries that year. I think that they lost 250 man games to injury that year. Big name guys. So they were a middle of the pack team. There was all these headlines that I was going over there and that I was coming over to save the season. And Rob, I had lost my first six games that I got there and had the best numbers in the league. We just could not score goals. 
I think I had like a 940 save percentage and like a 1.7 goals against or something ridiculous like that. I couldn't win games. The most incredible moment for me is we just played against Ljubljana and the score was 0-0, went into a shootout and they scored on me in a shootout. So it was a 0-0 loss, essentially. And as I was skating off the ice, the crowd started chanting the backup goalie's name. Like they wanted the backup goalie to continue playing. I don't know how much more I can do to try to help the team right now, but I couldn't win for whatever reason. And so then all of a sudden we changed that tune and we won like maybe our last eight games or something like that. And then we were ready for playoffs. We got into playoffs, first round of playoffs. We have to play Salzburg. So the team that I had just left year before come back. And unfortunately, we lost in seven games in that one too. So <laughs> two series loss in Austria, both against teams that I had played against the year before or the team that I was going to play for the next year. So tough loss. Everything was going great for me to re-sign with that team. And what ended up happening was they came to me and said, hey, Jordan, we'd like to have your agent put some sort of an offer on the table so we can get you to where you need to be financially. So I said, okay, cool. And I told my agent, I said, hey, this is what I think that we should do. And just for argument's sake at that time, guys were making anywhere between like 95,000 and 105,000 euros or something like that per year. And so I told my agent, I was like, hey, let's just go right in the middle. Let's go 100,000 euros, call her good. We'll get things rolling for next year. And my agent says, okay, cool. I get a call the next morning from my coach. And my coach says, hey, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm just having breakfast. I'm going to be on my way to the rink shortly. And he said, no, like, what are you doing with your agent? I said, what are you talking about? And he said, your agent just called and asked for 150,000 euros. So we're going to send you our counter offer here shortly. And their counter offer was 45,000 euros. It was very obvious that they were not pleased with the offer that my agent had given them. It ended up me re-signing, didn't work out. They gave me the whole yeah, we'll think about this. Just go back home and we'll come up with a game plan. And I went back home and within two days, I saw that they had signed another goalie and I knew that my opportunity was done there. I went back to the drawing board of, okay, we got to find a place to play again. And that year I decided that I was going to take one more shot at the National Hockey League. I went to camp with the Rangers and they had Lundquist, they had Marty Biron. I was again, odd man out. And so it was very clear that I was going to be pushed down right away and decided, you know, I got to get back over to Europe. And I went back home. And unfortunately, at that time, Europe has their teams picked in June and July. So you have to get over there and you have to sign quickly. And so now it's October and I don't have a team. And so I go back home and I'm really just sitting on my couch, going to the rink whenever I can and just waiting for an opportunity to come up. After a few months, around November or December, is when I had the opportunity to go over to Norway. They had a goalie that wasn't playing well. And that was kind of like the beginning of me heading over to, to Europe again. Norway isn't traditional market for top tier hockey. There are a few players here and there who played in the NHL, but not a lot. What was it like kind of to play there, the quality of hockey, et cetera? Quality of rinks was very poor. Quality of hockey, not that great. Hockey IQ was not there. Some of those guys were very skilled, but once it was time to put a puck on the ice and have guys start grinding out in the corners and things like that, it was very clear that a disconnect between really good hockey and Norwegian hockey. When I went over there, I thought Sweden and Finland are really good, so Norway's got to be pretty good too. Norway was an interesting place. Every time that you go overseas, every team has differences in their import rules. So how many North Americans or non-natives that they can have on their team? And so in Norway at that time, I think that they could only have three or four. So I went over there as an American. And unfortunately, what they had to do is they had to cut their goalie, who was a Norwegian goalie, who was buddies with everybody. Nobody was pleased with me right out of the gates when I got there because their buddy was the one that got cut. And I was coming late in the year where a lot of guys had already determined who their friends were on the teams. And then you couple that with Norwegians aren't traditionally known for being extremely warm, welcoming people. It was a very difficult place for me to be. Always dark, didn't have a great apartment, had a really bad car that they would give us. 
very expensive place to be. Wasn't making a ton of money. There was just a lot of stuff for me. It was a really difficult place to go. Now, we ended up having mild success. We went the farthest that that team had ever gone in that league, which was good. We made it to the semifinals, I think game five, lost in overtime. And then it was time for me to make a decision again. It was a good year. I had to have hip surgery again at the end of that season. So now this is my second hip surgery in three or four years. So it's very clear to me at this point that I don't have much left. And I went and spoke with the doctor. He just said, listen, man, if you continue to play, you will have to have a hip replacement at 33 years old. So that wasn't wonderful for me to hear, but I had the hip surgery done. I went to Vail and they had a, a wonderful guy named Dr. Mark Philippon and went to him, had it done again, and basically just rehabbed as much as I could that summer. I ended up having what they call a microfracture. So there was a large chunk of cartilage that had chipped off of the femoral head and so the microfractures, they go in there with essentially a drill and they start poking holes or drilling holes into the top of the femur and allow for sort of a pseudo cartilage to fill that space. When you have a microfracture done, it's a very strict non-weight-bearing protocol. After I had that surgery done, I was non-weight-bearing for about seven or eight weeks until things kind of settled in. And then I very quickly, as quickly as I could, I started to try to get ready for that next year. How was this hip rehab different than your prior hip rehab? My prior hip rehab, within three days of surgery, I was in a leg brace or I was in a hip brace so that I couldn't internally rotate that hard, externally rotate that hard. But I was right away back in the mix. The second hip surgery, I could not put weight on that leg for seven or eight weeks, just as they allowed that scar tissue or that pseudocartilage to sort of heal in that particular place. There was another labrum tear, so they had to reattach the labrum and do another chondroplasty where they're reshaping the femoral head and the femoral neck. Those types of things were still taking place, but it was that microfracture piece that made it so difficult to get back into the swing of things because I couldn't put weight on my leg. It starts to mess up your lower back, starts to mess up your sacrum, it starts to mess up a lot of different things when you're not putting weight on both legs at the same time. It was much more difficult for that rehabilitation after that second hip surgery. How were you able to regain your muscle memory and your muscle movement as well as your cardio? Because it's not like you can get on the treadmill and keep it like you can with an upper body injury. One was a group of guys that are based out of Arizona right now, and they had a modality that was called ARP Wave. And it was essentially a proprietary electrical stim machine that can find where there's neurological disconnects in your body, can help with atrophy, can help with blood flow, circulation, those types of things. And so I was religiously working with them to get back in the swing of things. And in addition, they also have a training protocol afterwards. I was just doing everything I possibly could as quickly as I could. Once I could start putting weight on things, when I couldn't put weight on things, I was using that e-stim machine. When I was able to put weight on things, then it was just how can I get back to some sort of health as quickly as I possibly can? Fortunately, that year, I didn't get picked up again until about November. So I had plenty of time for a full six, seven months of rehabilitation to get ready to go. You're finally healthy and ready to go. You mentioned you were signed in November. Which country in Europe did you go play? The only place that I could find a place to play was in the second league in Germany. They had an injury to a goalie there named Kellen Briggs. And I went there knowing that it was going to be a short-term contract, probably only one month, maybe six weeks. And then their other goalie was going to come back and then I would have to find a place to play it again. But I was super excited about it. They had a great group of guys on their team. I ended up doing well enough that when Kellen came back, there was another injury to a goalie in the German First League in the DEL with Tyler Wyman in Augsburg. And so they needed a goalie. The timing was a little bit fortuitous that I had opportunities because of injuries. You never want guys to get injured, but that at least gave me some place to play. I was there for the rest of the year. Now, Tyler came back a little bit earlier than they expected, so I was on the bench for most of the year. But in the games that I played, played extremely well, was really excited about, okay, I can still do this again. This is my second hip surgery, and I'm still able to function the way that I need to function. And if I couldn't get back into the DEL, if I couldn't get back into Austria then I was likely going to have to go to one of the lower leagues, this one being Italy, 
And I knew that if I was going to go to one of those lower leagues, that this was likely going to be my last season, unfortunately. And I was just going to have to make sure that I enjoyed it as much as I possibly could. So before we get to Italy, you played in Dresden, which significantly at the end of World War II was known for a very famous bombing. What was Dresden like, not as a player, but more so as a tourist being able to go around and see the city? It was a fantastic place because you're right. At the end of World War II, there was bombing that took place there and just decimated the city. And there's a church that's there and it's called the Dresden Frauenkirche, if I'm saying that correctly. And what they did is they rebuilt this church, but they used pieces from the bombed church in wherever those places were from the original church and put them into the new church. And so if you look at the church, there's these dark spots that are all over them. That's from the actual original church after it was blown up. That type of history, when you go over to Europe and you see these particular things and how they take so much pride in that type of stuff and pride in the originality of how amazing the architecture is. I just found that that was absolutely fascinating. Unfortunately, I was able to go in there and I was able to go down in the crypt and everything. It was such a wonderful experience. Those were the types of things that I just love to see. And so living in Dresden, that was fantastic. And then of course, they do an awesome job for their Christmas markets. They have all these different tents and they roast chestnuts and they have all this hot wine they call Gluvine. And it's just a place that people go and it's snowing and there's music playing and just everybody has such a wonderful experience. If anybody has an opportunity to go to a Christmas market in Europe, I 100% recommend that they do it. What's your favorite memory from a Christmas market in Europe? So what I try to do at the Christmas markets in Europe is all of these different Gluvine places, these hot wine spots, they all had different cups or different mugs. And so I would try to gather up as many mugs as I could. <laughs> so it ended up being me and maybe a couple other guys from the team walking around, possibly a little bit more inebriated than we had to be and just collecting these mugs. And then I would just give them to family members and things. And they're just cool little trinkets. And everybody's having a good time and everybody's laughing. It's just a wonderful experience. What ends up being your last year, you end up going to play in Italy for a guy named Mike Flanagan, not to be confused with the former major league pitcher of the same name. And Flanagan was an assistant for several years under current Tampa Bay coach, John Cooper. What was that like? For me, Mike Flanagan was another one of these guys that just allowed me to play. If I was to guess at that particular time, things may have not been going extremely well in Mike's personal life. We noticed that Mike was kind of hit or miss at the rink. As a coach, you have to experience all different types of players in all different types of scenarios. There's no longer the time where you can be a sort of a drill sergeant coach and you can just start screaming at people and getting them all in alignment. And Mike definitely didn't do that. However, I don't think that he had really found his stride for getting the most out of all of his players at all times. It was good to have an American coach. It was good to have a guy that understood what American hockey was. We played a very wide open, less focus on defense, high focus on scoring goals. And we did. We scored a lot of goals that year. So we had some really good guys and a really high scoring team. We just ran into a little issue when it came to playoffs. We ended up losing, I think, in game six that year of the finals at home. I think that if we would have had a little bit more focus on, hey, can we tighten this up or can we rely on more of a defensive game, less of as long as we score seven and they score six, we win the game. That's not really a wonderful philosophy if that particular day you're not scoring seven. Italy is a little bit different than Germany and Norway and Austria in terms of culture, food, all that kind of stuff. What was it like to just kind of go be a tourist? It was wonderful. Every time that we had some sort of a break, because a lot of the times in Europe, you have a couple day break and whether it's a couple days or a week, I would just get in my car and drive. Unfortunately for me, I never got down to Rome, which was one of those places that I really want to go to. But I spent a lot of time in Northern Italy. That's where I lived at that particular time. It's an amazing, amazing experience because the cultures are so different. The way of life is so different. To be able to be in Europe and you can jump on a flight on a Ryanair flight or an EasyJet flight, 25 bucks, and you can be gone for the weekend. 
up into England, up into France, up into wherever you want to go. It's an amazing, amazing deal. I tried as best I possibly could, especially towards the end of me being there, knowing that it was going to be the end of my career. Anytime I had the opportunity to go somewhere, I would. I was just talking with another friend of mine who played over there for about 10 years. It wasn't until now that he's working his normal job and he's got his family and he's got his kids where finally he had this realization. He's like, man, it was so sick that we had the opportunity to go and play over there and live over there. Looking back on your career, one person we haven't talked about is Ian Clark, who is currently with Vancouver. How instrumental was he during your career? That is the guy that changed everything for me. We had him at Shattuck. He was doing a hockey camp in the summer called GDI, Goaltender Development Institute. And he would have kids that would fly in. They would stay at the dorms. They'd be dropped off for one week. Because it was at Shattuck, he was looking for local goalies. And I was a local goalie. And I started working at those camps. That was the first time that I had been introduced to any sort of quote-unquote butterfly style. It was also the first time that I had been introduced to what does it actually take to be a pro? How much work does it actually take? How many repetitions do you actually need? How many shots do you need to take? What is the mental capacity that you need to have? I had no idea any of this stuff. And by some stroke of God, I had Ian Clark that showed up on my doorstep and asked that I would be a part of him growing his GDI camp in Minnesota and helping him out there. Man, I just have nothing but excellent, excellent things to say about Ian. Sometimes our personalities clashed because we are both very intense, <laughs> but his heart is always in the right place. And his heart is always about development and always about how can I make this person better in all regards? It didn't matter if you were a hockey player, baseball player, football player, non-athlete. He was always pushing the envelope of what are you currently not doing that you need to be doing in order to get to the next level in anything, in any endeavor that you're doing. Ian Clark was instrumental in changing my style and changing my career, changing the way that I looked at hockey and changing the way that I looked at life. Every goalie coach has a philosophy or keys to success in net. What were Ian's keys to success that he helped teach you? And he talks about how there are attributes that all goalies need in order to be successful. And it doesn't matter what level you are, if you're at a level one or a level 10, but you have to have all of these things. Athleticism, the athletic ability to play the position. This includes flexibility, elasticity, and the ability to effectively contort the body. Adaptability, the ability to adapt to inevitable change. This game evolves from a macro level over time to a micro level from play to play. Competitiveness, we must be the team's fiercest competitor always, and this must be repeated daily. Instinctive ability, the ability to break away from structure and to find a creative solution under pressure. Mental fortitude, the ability to focus on and execute solutions in the face of uncertainty or adversity. Reactivity, the ability to react and protect away from your body equally as well as within your body. Technical ability, strong technical basis paramount to attaining and repeating optimal in-net positioning and body positioning. However, this alone does not translate to elite level playing. And then finally, visual talent, which Ian talks about is probably the most important because it's the initiator for anything that you do. And so it's just the ability to read pucks off sticks, read plays, read rushes, find pucks in traffic. Those things that he introduced to us, they haven't changed. This is what it takes. You have to have all of these things. Now, if you look at all the goalies that are in the NHL right now, they all have different levels of these things. Some of them are a little bit less mentally strong. Some have a little bit less of a technical ability. Some are not wonderful athletes. Some can't adapt to change as well. A lot of the philosophies that I teach with my goalies now are based right off of the things that he told us. With Ian, he talks a lot about intangibles. When you think of the word intangible, what are you looking for in a potential goalie that you're coaching? Does he compete? That to me is an intangible. You either are a competitor or you're not a competitor. If you're not a competitor, it's very, very difficult for that to be trained into somebody. It's no different from motivation. I have parents that are coming to me and say, hey, I hope that you can motivate my child. When I was listening to Steve Hansen from the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team speak, 
his response was, it's not my job to motivate your player. It's my job to motivate myself. My job is also to do is to create an environment for a motivated player to excel. There has to be something deep down inside of you. You have a philosophy called pipes. Could you explain exactly what that is? Physiological, intellectual, psychological, emotional, and spiritual. And the last one that's on there is spiritual. And it's just, what is our reason for doing something? What is our why? What's our motivation? And ultimately, this is where self-discipline, personal discipline resides. Is that person competitive? And do they have the discipline that they need? Those are like the two intangibles for me. You can work on physiological, oh, he's not that strong or he's not that quick. No problem. We can work on that. He's not that smarter. He's not constantly learning. Okay, no problem. We can sit there and we can talk about what does he need to do in order to learn more? Can we show him video? Can we show him these types of things? Psychological is a little bit different. You have your mental, your cognitive, your behavioral strengthening. Through repetition, you can help somebody with those particular things. Your emotional side of things, how you respond to adversity and success, you can talk to people about that. You can train that. Coming up, you're going to be hosting a series of goalie clinics in July. Folks, if you want to find out more information on dates, pricing, et cetera, you can go to parisehockey.com. Once again, parisehockey.com. Jordan, why don't you fill us in a little bit more about what goalies and players can expect at these games? At our camp, we change it up a little bit. So the last couple of years, we've done a three-day or a four-day camp. And what I was noticing is I wasn't seeing the development that I really wanted or that they deserved. And so this year, what I decided to do is I set up three different camps. One is going to be that same traditional camp. It's just a development camp. We changed it so it's a little bit younger kids. You have to be a Bantam or younger for those, if I remember correctly. Then the other two... Each of these camps are one month long. The prospect camp, we decided that we were going to lower the goalie to coach ratio. We're traditionally a four to one ratio. So four goalies per coach. We have four goalies that are on the ice. We'd have 16 goalies on the ice. I decided to lower that just simply because if there's a lower ratio, that means that each one of those kids is getting more hands-on developmental instruction. And for that prospect camp, we are doing one month, four days per week, and you have a on-ice session and an off-ice session that are about an hour and 15 minutes each. We have a two-to-one ratio for that one. So that is about as hands-on as you can possibly get. And we just go to work. We have a lot of things that we need to do. There's a lot of different technical sides of things. There's a lot of breaking away from structure, breaking away from technique. We hit all of those every single day. Then the second level down from that is the elite camp. And that's two days per week. It's still a month long. I want to make sure that we get the opportunity to change behaviors over long periods of time. And I felt that the one-month camp is the best way to do that. All of these goalies that I've worked with, they understand my philosophy. They understand that when they step on the rink or they step into the building that we are working in, they know what the standard is. And the standard is they come to work. This isn't one of those camps where kids get dropped off and they're babysat and they get candy all day. These are kids that want to learn and want to play and want to get better. The best thing I can possibly do for these kids, if they're motivated players, is give them a platform for them to excel. And that's precisely what I'm attempting to do this year. When you're having these one-on-one -on -one sessions or one-on-two sessions, what's the hardest thing that you're finding in terms of a message to communicate? How hard you have to actually work. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. A message that I'm kind of changing up this year is just being kind to yourself. The stuff that we do is very hard for some kids and not as hard for other kids but there's little tweaks that need to be done and we push and we make sure that we are maximizing the amount that we can get out of these kids. Ultimately, there's some difficult times that these kids go through. And the message that I'm having these kids walk through more often now is you need to speak to yourself as if you were speaking to a friend who was struggling. So in other words, if you let in a goal, typically what people do is they may slam their stick and they may say, you're an idiot or you should have done this or you blah, blah, blah. There's some sort of negative messaging that you're telling yourself. And what I'm trying to get kids to do this year a little bit more is to have their self-talk be more along the lines of, hey man, you did your best, go get them next time. Maybe you'll try it again harder. Maybe you'll do a little bit better. Something along those lines, essentially giving yourself a tap on the pads and saying, you'll get them next time. It's more important for that message to be delivered now to these kids than ever, because there's so much that they see on a regular basis and online that's a comparative to somebody else's life 
and you have all these things that are, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough goalie. You're not a good enough person. You're not a good enough son. You're not a good enough player. You're not a good enough boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case may be. And so we have to change the way that we talk to ourselves and we have to encourage ourselves. And me as a coach, I need to encourage these players. We don't encourage each other anymore. And I don't understand why. And instead, there's reasons people in stoicism sit there and talk about how comparison is the thief of joy. There is more comparisons that we do now than we've ever done in the history of humankind. We need to be better about encouraging people and we need to be better about encouraging ourselves. Well, there are a lot of coaches that want to get into the AHL and NHL. For you, what do you enjoy most about working with kids? One of the reasons why I really like to work with kids, I think that kids are much more open to change and much more open to trying new things. You can also see drastic changes in kids really quickly, and they see things happen very quickly. When you start working with older kids, they usually have a relatively good technical base. There's small tweaks that you can make, but at that point, there's a lot that has more to do with the mental capacity that they're dealing with. It has more to do with philosophical type things. I want to work with kids who are extreme competitors and love the discipline. Whatever the age group is, I love working with any of those kids. So as we're winding down here, where do you see Jordan Parise in 10 years? In 10 years, I would like to have a life that is full of three things. And those three things are adventure, travel, and helping people. If I have a life that has those three things, then I've gone the right direction. Can I join you on that? You're more than welcome to join me on that trip. Jordan, I want to thank you for your time for coming back and joining us on the I Play 2 podcast. Once again, folks, if you're interested in having your son or daughter work with Jordan, go to parisehockey.com for more information. Jordan, thanks so much, and we'll catch up with you soon. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Rob. I really appreciate it.